Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 141. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to own a restaurant? If you're like me or you're like most of the people out there, you've been sitting at dinner, having a cocktail, going, man, I should own a restaurant. I swear everybody's had that thought, but then everybody knows the stats or you've heard someone say restaurants are the worst business to own. It'll put you under. It'll suck the soul out of you. It's a cash business. It's in people and there's always a bunch of challenges and headaches. Yes, that is true. And yes, that is true of all businesses. And what Maddie O'Reilly, who is our guest today, proves wrong about the restaurant business is that it can be extremely profitable and lucrative if you approach it right. Maddie O'Reilly was one of the Twin Cities Business Magazine's 100 People to Know in 2019. His restaurant holding company, O'Reilly Custom, clocked over $10 million in revenue in 2018. He's flipped over a dozen restaurants, and one of them he bought and sold for a 40 times return on his investment, and he never paid over 80 grand for any of them. This episode is absolutely must listen to if you're interested in the restaurant business, if you've always wanted to know how to potentially do it for a profit, and then hearing how you can do this with very little money down and approaching the restaurant like a normal business and doing things the right way can be fun and lucrative. Before we kick into the episode, there's a couple updates that I wanna give everybody. The first one is we are tentatively got our book launch date. So if I have not mentioned, uh, we have uh, been really working hard, we being me and my partner, Jim Carlisle, on building out and writing this book on how to grow and exit your company. The book title is called Ripcord, How to Grow and Exit Your Company. Our launch date tentatively is September. So we're getting really, really close. And what it does, it takes the five growth and exit planning principles and the process and it gives it all away like here it is i want this to be out in the world so owners know how to grow and exit their company they can hire the right team of advisors they can do this right so pretty pumped about that and the second update is we are launching a growth and exit planning accelerator so what that is is if you are interested in understanding how to grow and exit your company the right way we are taking those five principles and the process and we are putting it into a 12-month cohort program. So there's a start and there's a stop. It's meeting once a month for a half a day. Our first one is being launched in the Twin Cities here in Minnesota within the next 90 to 120 days. And it's specifically for people that are looking one to five years out and you want to grow the value of your company, you want to build a team of advisors, understand the valuation target that you're marching towards, understand the exit that is going to come to the forefront that makes the most amount of sense for you. This is for you because we're giving you all the knowledge, all the resources within the framework that we have built, but your commitment is only a half a day once a month and you're able to level up your knowledge so that way you can hire the right team and do a lot of this yourself. And you get to help a group of entrepreneurs that are also going through the same stuff. So with that being said, I really hope you enjoy this interview with Maddie. This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by GEXP Collaborative. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the buyer of your choice at the price you want. Maddie, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. 
So I'm glad that uh, what was on record, what we were just talking about was not on record because we have a lot, <laughs> a lot of mutual friends that we were talking about. Um, we got introduced here in the you're in the executive MBA program at St. Thomas with one of my <laughs> friends, Scott Zapucka. I'll give you a, a shout out. And uh, yeah, so we'll we'll leave that off the record. But for the listeners uh, that might not have uh, heard of you or didn't see you on the on the Twin Cities Business Journal uh, paper recently. Look, Give us a little bit of your background and what you're doing now. And then uh, even kind of going back, you said you were doing some fun things, Maddie, in a band. And so just kind of curious on some of the big highlights of, uh, of the background. Sure. Well, uh, yeah, I grew up in the Twin Cities. And while I was in college, I uh, started working in the restaurant business. And it was a crazy story. So I might as well lead with this because it sort of inspired me to consider this as a profession. So I was a uh, sophomore in college. And in, in the summer, I got a call at my, uh, I was staying at my parents' house and I got a call at midnight on a Tuesday night at my parents' house, which is really weird. I was 19 years old. And, uh, my dad answered the phone and he, uh, woke me up and it was the bar manager from champs in Minnetonka and it, <laughs> that, that just opened and it was really, really busy. And a friend of mine worked there. He's like, you gotta come work here, put in your application. I'll see what I can do. <laughs> and I, I went and dropped off my application and, and the host just laughed at me almost. She said, yeah, there's a stack like 300 of these. So good luck. And just so I walked out kind of deflated. And then I'm just it woke up in the, in the middle of the night, basically, and to this call and, and the bar manager said, hey, uh, Maddie O'Reilly. I'm like, yep, that's me. It's like, it's really late on a Tuesday. Like, what's going on? He's like, well, I'm looking at your application and uh, we'd, we'd uh, like to bring you in for an interview. And I'm like, okay. And he's like, well, actually, we'd like to bring you in. And I'm like, all right. He's like, can you be here in a half an hour? <laughs> and I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, our bar back cut his hand and he won't be able to finish his shift. So he's like, if you can be here in a half an hour, you got the job. Mm-hmm. So I, I was like, what's the uniform? I'll be there. And I borrow my car, <laughs> parents' car. And I drove there and worked until 3.30 in the morning. And I got paid with um basically they just people bossing me around like get some beers and get some ice and it was just this packed busy place so i uh, i got paid that night in just coins just the change and it was four pitchers like beer pitchers full of <laughs> so- <the> chain. <laughs> and i'm like <laughs> and i didn't know how much it was it could have been 50 bucks and it was $250 and just change and i'm oh, like no kidding this is it was amazing so that was like my first night and sort of exposure to the to the industry and it was just super dynamic and fun i ended up working there for almost a year and a half and it was it was a through through college and it was just exciting and every day was different and then it came to came to my senior year and i either had to pick an internship somewhere else to sort of fulfill my uh to get my business management degree at st john's and and so I asked the owner and the manager of Champs if I could just do my internship on the hospitality industry and use them as an example because I wanted to keep working there because it was so fun. And it was so much money. And so I basically did, I, I did my final um, internship and paper on the hospitality industry my senior year in college. So I kind of had this you know, base of knowledge and I was starting to gain some insights into it. And then I had this real world sort of exciting 
entry into it and the experience of it, of, of working there. So I kind of, I was kind of drawn to it in a unique way that I had this sort of, you know, I was starting to get to know the framework of how tricky it is and the challenges that went into it. And then I was actually working in one too. So when I got done with college, I, I had a couple of jobs that I really didn't love. And I just kind of called a few friends and sort of fell back into the restaurant business, worked as a server for a couple months, and then I got promoted to manager, and then I got promoted again, and then I switched companies, and I basically just, for about 10 years, just worked my way with uh, some pretty smart, you know, methodical moves with just more, just better restaurant companies in the Twin Cities until I finally just developed enough confidence and experience to, to know that I kind of wanted to do this for a living. So I worked for other people for about 10 years in management. And then I've worked for myself in the restaurant business for almost 16 years now. Well, and there's, and I'm super excited to dive into this. So, because first of all, we don't have to go too much about it. I can't believe you're a Johnny. So I am too. And the fact oh, that you're- Yeah, going, we didn't put that together. That's no, awesome. the fact that you are going to St. Thomas for your master's is unfortunate, but- um, <laughs> don't, so, don't hold it against me. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, <laughs> I, so well, because I want to dive into it because you're doing a lot of really, really interesting things that you've been doing by yourself in the restaurant industry. But what I'm curious, Matt, is like, it's so funny because I go back to the because I've been you know lived grew up in an entrepreneur family and I always wanted to run my own companies and so many people that kind of start in that mindset like I'm gonna own a restaurant because it's the thing that they always see <clears throat> then everybody says don't ever get into the restaurant business right because it's people and cash and blah 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 what what is it like as you work for people over the last those first ten years what was so exciting about it and what did you love about it that led you into starting your own deal. It's a great question. It's so mine was more just about my introduction to it. I, I was always, you know, intrigued by the industry. And I think a lot of people are, I would say, in today's mm -hmm. age versus the age that, you know, the era that I was, you know, sort of building my, my uh, years of experience, there was no chef's table or top chef or there wasn't this exposure to the industry that we have today. So I think that there were less people in my era. So I, I graduated college in 1992. I, there wasn't the visibility and sort of the, the drama and excitement of what the, the perception of the industry today looks like didn't really exist back then. It was more, it was considered more of almost like a blue collar thing mm -hmm. as opposed to the celebrity chef type experience from a career trajectory. So there, there were no, there weren't very many chef schools. And if there were, they were on one of the coasts and it was, it was very uh, perceived quite a bit differently than it is today. I think that's, that's part of it. So, and, uh, and I came from the kind of the opposite, uh, where my dad was, uh, a, just a hardworking, amazing, you know, guy, but he was a hardworking, um, commercial, um, insulator worked in construction my whole life and was in a, a union and in that trade for 40 plus years. So, well, I worked with him in college before over summers and on J terms. Um, and he, he basically talked me into at least considering doing something that I was passionate about. Cause I think he, a very different era. <laughs> right. Um, also where, you know, my sister and I are the true Irish twins were 11 months apart and he, like back when you two were born, he's like, I needed a job and, and I got one. And he's like, and then it just, life happens and you just keep, he just kept working and he, he did, he did really well. 
by staying loyal to his profession and career. And, uh, but he, uh, also during the times that we worked together, he's he kind of reminded me, he's like a lot of people whose sons work in my trade end up doing what their dad does. And, he, and, you know, just be really conscious that you've got a lot of options to just find, you know, your passion and find, you know, what you truly want to do. So it's, it's, so I was drawn to the industry. I think it was, it was, a uh, a lot of people are, I just liked, um, I'm, you know, I'm a introvert, but I also do like, I didn't like the idea of being trapped like in an office or the four walls of a, mm-hmm. of a, of a building. I like the idea of being on my feet. I like the idea of having both the creative aspects of a, of something as far as like, when I started working for myself too, it was, I, I, I can, I'm a pretty good, you know, I can draw, I'm creative, I'm a musician, but I also have this sort of analytical, I was, I was always a math, you know, I started college as a math major. So I have this sort of best of both worlds mm-hmm, from mm-hmm. using both sides of the brain and this restaurant industry. I think a lot of, a lot of attention gets put on this conceptual design. Like it's almost everything is like, what's the name? What's the logo? Who's the chef? And you know, that gets all this attention, but a lot of the, the real work comes from managing these numbers and just knowing what to do with them and knowing how to write a pro forma and just analyze a P and L and just sort of get, it's not the glamorous part, but it's probably, you know, that balance that I have it kind of at least gives me my own advantage. When I look at things, I don't just look at them from one angle. I can look at them from multiple angles. So I liked all the aspects of that. I liked sort of digging into the numbers um, cause I think that's where a lot of people get in over their head is they just don't understand. They come up with a really good idea. They have a really talented chef and they just don't sort of fulfill the economic aspects or the sort of the financial aspects that go into these things. They just, they think they see other restaurants succeeding and they, they sort of piece things together to get them up and running, but they really don't critically look at sort of the data and the mm-hmm. analytics that go into what makes these things work. Are you familiar with the, the book, The E-Myth? No, not so, yet. So it's written by Mike, Michael Gerber, and it's 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 uh, short for The Entrepreneurial Myth. And what, what I love about that book is they say that a lot, and I think the restaurant industry is very a perfect example of this, where a lot of people in the trades or you know a lot of entrepreneurs, they like they were working for the man and they had this entrepreneurial seizure. And they're like, ah, oh, I don't want to work for the man anymore. So then they go out and do it on themselves, by themselves. And so like in the restaurant, example would be like okay i want to do this but then they get or in a, a perfect i think the book in the, the example is the plumber the plumber then gets more busy so they hire more plumbers and they hire more plumbers and then they don't realize that wait a second i need apar hr operations right. finance <laughs> like like i wanted to just be a plumber <laughs> and so like there's this whole like i think the restaurant industry is probably based on what you just said is probably uh you know similar victim of a lot of people that just really really enjoy the experience and don't realize that it's a machine that kicks out cash. <laughs> oh, it's, it's totally true. I'll, I'll elaborate on that because I, I can, I could probably rant about just this thing for the <laughs> whole hour and I won't, I'll try to refine it and distill it down into the, keeping it to the point, but we're work like the difference between the plumber and what I do is <laughs> there's literally the restaurant industry has no barrier to entry. So if I wanted to be a plumber, and I went to a bank with a half million dollars and just said, Hey, I want to open my own plumbing shop. They're like, are you a plumber? Are you, did you go to school for it? 
do you have your license? Are you certified to, to do this work? And they would just look at my half million dollars and just laugh at me, you know? So, but mm-hmm. if the plumber <laughs> wanted to open a restaurant <laughs> tomorrow, they, with a half million, so dollar for dollar, two people can walk into a bank and with the same amount of money and say, I want to do that profession, the plumber, no one would stop that plumber. Nobody. They would just <laughs> let them do Oh, so daydreaming you're a sure thing. We'll help you. No problem. And they just take the money and then they get into the, so <laughs> beyond the struggles of taking your, your skill set. So in my business, say you're a chef and you get fed up and you're just like, I can do this. If this guy can, I can, or if this, uh-huh. you know, if this person can, I can, but they don't see the layers of what they're getting themselves into. If they're a chef and they're a great chef, it doesn't mm-hmm. mean they're a great bookkeeper or they're a great negotiator, lease negotiator. It doesn't mean they're, they're great at finance and know how to structure the right you know, deal over the course of time that will make this place profitable. They're just so reliant on kind of the assumptions and sort of the intuition, which gets you to a certain point but that's where I've been coaching a lot of people, you know, on the side. And what I hope to do after school is, is really sort of dive into this, this space of sort of clarifying that we're, we're dealing with an industry that has no barrier to entry. So if a brain surgeon, an accountant, and a plumber, and a restaurateur all go to the bank, all four of those people could open a restaurant. But <laughs> so- the restaurateur couldn't do any of those other professions. And that's where... You know, I, I, it's a portion of the consulting company I'm creating yeah. is to really just minimize and basically uh, reduce the failure rate in restaurants. Part of it is really getting in touch with the lenders, the landlords, the, the investors before they jump into something that they don't really get all the data and the facts. Mm-hmm. So it's, those are a few examples I've worked on with my, a couple of my current bankers are they basically confidentially would show me a business plan. And, and I, I said, were, were you going to say yes to this? And they're like, well, we like it. They have, they're fully funded. They have this chef and, and I'll just, there, you know, 50 lines on a, on a pro forma that I can just say, well, you know, it, they're, they're trying to make the bottom line look pretty to get the investor, but it's not accurate. Like they're just letting anybody into this in, into this realm without really anything other than the pile of money that someone has in the bank or the group of investors that's behind it. Like there's really no one stopping people from doing it. So it's contributing to the failure rates. It contributes to the stats that make this seem like a challenging industry. And if you back all of that out, mm-hmm. it's, I don't think it's any more challenging than it would be but it really contributes to why, who gets a loan and why, you know, it, it's really just, I'd say it's skewed and maybe flawed in a well, way where there's no education. You know, right. Well, no- and I think what is interesting too, is that, <clears throat> which you bring up a ton of really valid points and I, I will also resist going down a rabbit hole here, but I think it's also because bankers are pushing for loans because they need to make their commissions and they need to make they've been you know begging for stuff on low interest rates for the last 10 plus years and yeah. they because most bankers are just salespeople you know then there's all you know then there's definitely a select bankers that are financiers and and or entrepreneurs that get it and so I'm not generalizing too much here but is they also a lot of the loans is because it, the banker has to understand what you're doing and under in restaurants are very 
tangible. It's like, oh, I get it. I go to restaurants a lot. Sure. Versus like, you know, a banker trying to approve a loan that they just have of a business model of making widgets. Like, eh, I don't really know. Or like, there's a bunch of banking problems right now and very, very viable uh, online companies that have been producing ridiculous amounts of cash flow for years. But the bankers go, I don't really get it. <laughs> and so it's like, so then they can't get the loans for the stuff of a very, very valuable business. So I think it's an interesting, <laughs> I didn't, never really thought about it that way. I didn't know it was that easy to, for spin up a uh, restaurant yeah you could uh not much barrier to entry i mean you have to you know have a clean you know a record to get a liquor license you have to be able to fill out a pretty lengthy you know liquor license application and other than that uh, you know you could basically pay an attorney to get you through a few hoops, you know, hurdles yeah. hoops there but it's it's a uh, relatively easy compared to other professions like i said if i if i wanted to be a, a carpenter i can't i can't just put a sign in my garage. You know, it's like there ha yeah. there is some skill there and there's some, you know, an education piece and there there are, you know, there's a school to go to to get, you know, it it there are a lot of professions that basically you just need a, a certificate. You'd probably need more education to be a restaurant broker than you do to own a restaurant. Like probably. actual yeah, yeah. classes. You have to get a you have to pass your real estate exam and you I mean, there's there isn't one of those to be to do what I do for a living. So I think once again to sort of get to the sort of the root of the problem, at least from a consulting side, because I've I've got a good approach to this too. It's it's a diversified my company in a pretty cool way. So I know lots of different segments of the industry and lots of different I didn't just get well, let's, let's do that for the, for the listeners, man. Sorry to interrupt is let, let's go. Yeah, no problem. Let's give them a, uh, give them an overview of, so when you started 16 years ago, what is the businesses that you built and like, what was your model towards restaurants? And then how have you kind of taken that and like, how has that evolved? And before, you know, or somewhere in the mix of there is, you know, what was your, and how was your approach different? Like, so when you went off on your own, you said, okay, cause I, like, I know you've got a very specific approach on how you look at all this stuff, but maybe mm -hmm. you start with, okay. Here's kind of the highlights of what I've done over the last 16 years. Sure. Yeah, my first first place was a, a little cafe, a downtown Excelsior, the city of Excelsior, really, really quaint, cool town right off of Lake Minnetonka. And uh, it was an existing business um, that I bought. And it was a kind of a coffee shop, like wine bar hybrid. And uh, they were the only game in town. It, it was there for six years before I bought it. It had two different owners within those six years. And I, and I analyzing the business outside looking in, I noticed that two chain coffee shops opened up within the one within blocks of this place and the other one within the mile of the place. So I, I saw this, this, I call it a trend at the time was just this uh, Starbucks, Dunn Brothers, Caribou Coffee just popping up left and right. They were kind mm -hmm. of over saturating this market. So this independent coffee shop that was super vibrant and reliant and the town was basically reliant on this one place their sales were just cut in half and it was like once you are you're open for three years and then a heavy hitter competition comes in two blocks away basically takes half your volume how do you how do you react like how do you how at what at some point how do you get adaptive once you have a business plan and a strategy and things are going well and a disruption like that for a lot of operators whether you're new to the business or not is can be really challenging so coming in from the outside we i approached that one with a rebrand and it was the, the place was you know arguably in decline at that point too so the the price to me which ended up being more or less my my game plan moving forward was 
to be really conscious of spending upfront too. I think a lot of people get in over their head with a, a lot of debt that they can't handle and their high hopes of sales and revenues that don't ever mm-hmm. materialize. So I think that's all come back to that. So the, with this place, we basically just affordably and uh, uh, rebranded to give it sort of this new life. And we switched the model from counter service to table service. And at the time, you know, you had this uh, very different equation from minimum wage. Uh, what it was at the time was, you know, was when I bought that in 2004, I think it was less than $5 an hour <laughs> to, pay, to pay a server. Today, it's, you know, it's in the nines and it's about to be 15 in Minneapolis in, in the next three years. So with the, the and, but a barista at the time was making nine, 10, $11 an hour. So I'm like, well, let's look at this. If we're going to, I could reduce labor by switching the concept from counter service to table service. Not only am I paying people to be on the floor, but I'm paying them half as much. Mm-hmm. A, a table service should and could generate more sales per guest than a coffee shop. So I'm basically increasing sales and decreasing labor by making this one switch. So we basically just kind of uplifted the food statement there, dropped in table service instead of counter service. We never really lost the coffee shop. People kept coming in there for coffee, but we, if they wanted it to go, that we just kept doing it to go, but didn't really, but I'm paying people at this point, five fifteen an hour, but they're selling four to eight times as much as what they used to because they're on the floor mm-hmm. we're you know selling drinks and an extra glass of wine and dessert and you know we were we were able to elevate the price points because it was made to order food instead of food sitting in a case so it, we basically just kind of and that was more or less that decision was free it was the right. same space the same tables and chairs the same kitchen and it was the way we used it basically increased sales and decreased labor and that was just out of the gate was just i wouldn't say out of the gate it was busy but over the course of time, the structure that we created there was, was just more viable than battling with the competition that had a better name recognition, buying power. You can't compete with someone, you know, dollar for dollar with Starbucks. You can't. And, you know, they're mm-hmm. now maybe this third wave coffee movement, like you've got a chance here with a different audience in the way. But back in 2004... You, you, you're almost hopeless in this situation to sort of compete with these brands. Like mm-hmm. it, so basically transitioning the concept and being creative in the use of the space and how it served that community and just getting that alignment, that conceptual alignment right, was really kind of just a thoughtful approach. But once again, these, these moves are free. Like they don't, it didn't cost me a dime to make that switch. It was basically just realigning this the four walls of this space with how it, it served food. People are going to come in there. They're going to eat and drink. That's pretty basic. How are they going to get the food? You know, the structure of how I paid people. The servers were happy because they used to make 10 bucks an hour and they'd make $20 in tips. And now they make five bucks an hour, but they'd make $100 in tips. And they're, so they're, you know, in, on a shift. So they're, it's kind of this win-win, you know, Everybody, situation. Yeah. So it's, so that was easy. We were able to, you know, over the course of 12 years, almost, you know, quadruple the sit, no more than quadruple the sales that were there before, just from this, this, this switch and the commitment to that switch. So it was, it was a, it was good for the, the town. It was um, very good for the four walls of that business and the rent structure, the rent structure that was originally created was sort of based off of this coffee shop volume, not this sort of cafe wine mm-hmm. bar, live mm-hmm. music. You know, we had 
the register ringing from 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. So we're oh, paying wow. flat rate rent. So it, it was the, the rent percentage was so healthy. And once you can sort of identify and pinpoint those opportunities of like, if my rent is fixed and I'm paying it, you know, it's not a variable, you know, rent rate. Does it, I could, does it fluctuate I could, with, with, with other bars and restaurants? Yeah, I've got a, a bunch of different structures um, in place and I've, I've done a, a lot of them where they were uh, percentage rent was built into the equation or a combination hmm. of I never a knew base that. rent with a percentage. And then I had a, a one, in one case, it was a, if I hit a certain sales threshold, I paid a, a certain percentage over that because everyone knew that if we got to that point in sales, we, we, we were all winning, we were all succeeding. So it was kind of, kind of tying the, the landlord and the, and the broker on that deal into the success of the place was once it hit a certain threshold of sales, a percentage hit on top of that, which still kept it really healthy and was that sort of the number that the landlord wanted to get in the first place. I, you know, I entered into that deal. This, this deal might not be economical for us, but if I get to the certain amount of sales, you'll get your number and I'll be making mine. So it was to be creative, to at least approach those in a bunch of different ways. So a lot of times these flat rent, you know, fixed rents really work for businesses that are thriving. And yeah, then yeah. I've, I've been a part of a few and where they kind of push the limits of, you know, being healthy for everybody. And that's, you know, you always kind of want that win-win. Super cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's give us, give us the framework of, of okay, so over the, over the 16 years, like, what was your, like, how many, because, I mean, you were in flipping restaurants and also doing a lot of other stuff, right? And, like, obviously, then there are, um, tactics that you learn like that, because I want to dive into some more of those, that stuff. But what, overall, like, what's the, what's the kind of the, the big picture of what it is, how many restaurants, what was the overall strategy, and how did you go from that first cafe, and then what was the, like, what were you striving for? And then how did, what were the big milestones? Yeah. So I, what, after the first couple of years, I kind you know, I was, things were going well and I just had this picture. Like, I'm like, I've worked for people that grew sort of this methodical growth was always a sort of in the back of my mind of like when the timing's right or if the right deal comes along. So I'll, I'll touch on that for a little bit and hopefully come back to it too. Mm-hmm. I'll also clearly say right now that there is there are just about the same number of available second generation restaurants every year since I started working for myself. There are never any more or any less available. So, and I'm talking about things for sale, things that are empty, just waiting for someone to sign a lease, things that have gone under, let's just say the volatility of the industry leaves a very static amount of available inventory of second generation restaurants. And when Mm -hmm. I say second generation, Someone went in before me, then this I'll get to my ultimate you know plan and message here. Someone went in before me and spent all the money basically to build out a restaurant that was never a restaurant before is the investment like there you can't do it yeah cheap so if you're taking an office space and turning it into a restaurant, the costs that go into that they're astronomical in my mind, and the people do it, and they still do it i I'd argue that once someone has spent that money and the life cycle of a restaurant kind of runs its course and or if someone just changes their mind and they don't want to do this anymore, the available inventory of second generation restaurants has, has yet to change in my career working for myself. So I, if I can count on that, I'm, not, I'm in no hurry or panic to, to, go, to jump into a project because even if I was looking to grow, I can count on the fact that there will be an empty space sitting there that's going to be a great value. So that's my 
my pet peeve in the restaurant business is it basically goes against most principles of simple business, which are just the buy low and sell high. Nobody does that. And it's really strange. It's like you almost have to start high to make your mark and then just literally cross your fingers that you've made the right choice as opposed to my approach, which was get, I'm taking over these places for sometimes zero dollars. They literally outfitted with kitchen equipment, furniture. Like I, we, I'd go into these places and basically just realign the concept under, you know, contemporary standards and over the, and, and or the needs of that neighborhood that basically diversify the concept from everything else. So let's, with, gotta get, let's dive in. No money. <laughs> so like, right, so, right, right, right. And I'm like, I'm so intrigued. Cause like, yeah, so. it's so easy, but it's, <laughs> I don't see a lot of people doing this and it's, I wouldn't recommend someone who's never, who didn't have experience like me mm-hmm. to go do it, but these opportunities exist and it's really, it's helped me. Let's go, let's go into like, oh, I'm so, go, so, so curious. So like, okay, like you're, you're looking at it, like, let's take, take, take it back to, all right, you're, you're, you're going to try and find a new place. What is the, like the cities, the demographics, the business, like what is the, to zero in to figure out where you want to find the empty space? And then what's your train of thought? And then I'm so curious in how you're buying these companies for zero down and then what you're doing. Like, like what is kind of the, the sequence of events? Yeah. So Usually, you know, you kind of, I look at emerging neighborhoods first and I think that's, you know, I kind of, I don't, I've been offered dozens of places in the North Loop and Lower Town St. Paul and Linden Hills. And it's, it's, when I look at that, I kind of, I see a lesser opportunity of making a huge difference in a neighborhood. I'm basically adding to a strong mix of things. I'm not afraid to compete and I'm not afraid of finding points of differentiation in these neighborhoods. But the Excelsior, when I moved into Excelsior, there were four restaurants total on Water Street. Now there are, I think there are 12. You know, so it's when I moved on to, when I, when I opened Republic in 2011 on Seven Corners, I would consider this neighborhood, so it, it, they, they uh, survived the, you know, basically the effects of like the 35W bridge collapse, the, the Metrodome, you know, nothing happening on that site for so long that this corner back in the day was the super vibrant corner. Like I think in the 80s, 90s, and then up until basically the Timberwolves and the Gophers and everyone started and everyone started and the Twins started playing at different stadiums. This corner was hot because there were 200 dates a year that the Metrodome was being used and were blocks away. So. When I, when I entered into that deal at Republic, it was the last year of the Metrodome and then it was demolished and there was nothing for five years. So I'm like, I'm looking at this as an opportunity to realign the concept in, within the four walls of that space with the people who are already parking their cars, who are already sort of occupying that neighborhood. So I, I, I took a bar that was called Sergeant Preston's, which it was very successful and it was there for 38 years. It was in decline when I got it. It was, I think I put uh, 50,000 bucks into it from day one. I opened it three weeks after we closed on the deal and we've quadrupled the sales there because we, we weren't aligning with the sports. We took out all the televisions. We approached it like we're a block away from the grad school side of the U of M. So we've got a smart person. We were a little bit ahead of the craft beer crave, you know, craze in Minnesota. And then we're surrounded by six theaters that between Wednesday, Thursdays, Friday, Saturday, and sometimes Sunday are filled with people who are paying to go to the theater. 
<laughs> so the, we're looking at a food first craft beer thing to sort of tie the brand directly tie the brand into what's happening on the neighborhood that wasn't reliant on the stadium back in the day. Mm-hmm. If I would open that place in 1985, I would open a sports bar there because it made sense. If you, you kind of watch this thing run its course, you sort of just, once again, logically step back, say, okay, what, what did it used to be? What, you know, what, why was it like that? Identifying the audience. And then just basically I use the same, same tables and chairs, the same bar, the same taps, the same kitchen equipment, and literally almost within the year quadrupled the sales in that location <laughs> because, and it was basically just aligning this concept with the people who have already parked their car and or live around there. There weren't, there was no, there were no undergraduate students within a mile of there, but this sort of craft beer, I could sort of see the early signs of it catching on. There are a couple other models in town that I was a big fan of. And I'm like, this, this neighborhood sort of needs something like this. This is the audience that's there. So to use that as the example, that was eight years ago. And like I said, the initial investment there was 50,000. How did you say, are you going in there to like an owner? And like, I'm curious and like, when you're, when you're like some of the negotiations, it sounds like, you know, what you're doing with the rents and stuff like that, a lot of creative deal structuring is probably stuff that you've picked up over the years. Yep. And so what, like, what were the terms, conditions, how were you doing it? And um, like, what, like, what were the negotiations like? That one was a, it was it, it went pretty well. It was on the market. So once we know what's available, it was on the market for a long time, which actually I think gives the, you know, the buyer a little advantage and some leverage. We kind of know once you put something on the market, you sort of know, you, you probably heard this story too. It's just, you've already, you know, check, you're checking out as you know, mm-hmm. you're not going to have it anymore. But the longer that goes, I think the, the better opportunity there is. And we also had the support of the landlord too. So he, he, uh, sort of helped us negotiate that deal, but it was a seller finance deal at the end of the day. So it kept it super, not a whole lot down. Um, and like I said, we sort of saw the opportunity of like, if we can build sales, which happened, um, I wouldn't say effortlessly, but we did, we got a ton of press. We had a lot of strong relationships and really just made the right moves there to build you know, sales and get that momentum. And on the best of both worlds, that location too, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a big facility on near a college campus on a pretty busy corner, and it has this humongous patio. So I thought that was a huge opportunity there where you have people around from September 1st to June 1st because the school, and then you also have this draw of this less of a seasonal fluctuation on a college campus because you've got this massive patio. So you've got a draw in the summer when no one's around. Mm -hmm. So I thought I saw this year round sort of sort of sales model without the seasonal fluctuations of like a, a college, most college bars are busy between September and May. Mm-hmm. And then most places like on a lake out in Excelsior are busy, you know, in the summer when people mm-hmm. are around. So it, without having to ride out those cash flow, you know, variances, Strange. this, this one was yeah. a, a pretty cool year round opportunity, which, which really gave it some legs, especially in the early days. Uh, yeah. So you did the seller financing, but like when, when restaurants are, or are, on the market, what kind of multiples and what are the typical valuations like? Yeah, those it's low compared to other businesses. I think the the going rate right now is about you know two and a half times cash flow, which is it's low. I think is versus like a service based thing or a tech. You know, it's it's uh. But there, once again, it kind of comes back to the point too. I haven't seen 
a lot of super desirable and profitable restaurants in in the inventory available. Like it's a lot of people that are not doing well. They want out and or they might be failing and not really Mm -hmm. providing accurate numbers. So it's that I think too has been at least people, you know, some people think I'm, think I'm crazy when I sell things at their peak. It's, it's relatively easy because there aren't a lot of models out there that are like in tip top shape performing year after year that could sort of sustain a new owner in any capacity because it's, once again, they're just, there's not a lot of inventory and com- probably, right? comparables at, at available at the time. So it's, I, I know there's going to be a bunch of them every year to look at. I know that I, if I go in with a lot of logic and data and analysis of just like the neighborhood and what's missing in that neighborhood, I can make an impact. Um, if I pick an emerging neighborhood, you're almost the hero instead of just being another part of the mix. You could really enhance, you could, you could more or less, you could help neighborhoods by being better and sort of setting the bar somewhere that everyone sort of takes takes a look and you know if I for Republic as using that as the example it's visible and you know if if I quadruple the sales there there's no doubt that you know I made an impact on the neighborhood but I I don't know if I was um, I wasn't trying to step on toes or anything but those are people that were going somewhere else it wasn't all new people driving way out of the way to come there. These are the same people on the neighborhood that we're using mm-hmm. and going to the other options there. So if, if I didn't create some sort of, you know, statement there of like, this is, this is, you know, the bar and this is where it should be. It, I, th- I don't think in any way it really hurt. Everyone else around me seems to be doing just fine, if not better. And I created some visibility to when, when we go on a wait, it's people spill into other places Mm-hmm. You know, so I think there's really, it's that all, all ships rise sort of mentality where I was looking for points of differentiation. So the, uh, and an, w- one thing I couldn't have predicted with that place is that, you know, I'm a, it's a beer bar, a craft beer bar on a college campus, but we, 65% of our sales are food, which is just, I, I wouldn't have been able to guess. It's usually quite a bit lower than that. Mm. And it's, uh, I'm proud of that. And it just means that we put this sort of food first message into this place that was kind of this notorious drinking establishment before. And the food was the opportunity. If more people come here and eat food, they're only going to drink that much more beer. So mm-hmm. it's, it was, it was a lot of the beer I bar models kind of, yeah, yeah. You do. <laughs> <laughs> I usually drink, food, I, I usually drink and then the food comes after I need I'm it. Like, Thank <laughs> God they have food. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, so, so that's a good one. It's a visible one too. And it's, you know, I've, I used uh, to go there, man. That was a right by our old office. It, we, I used to get my sour beer there. Um, do, uh, yeah. it's, um, Duchess sour. Yeah. Sour. Duchess. Yeah. It's yeah, a man. great Belgian beer. Well, it's, yeah, it's, um, turn me on to that. I love it. So I'm curious, man. Sure. It's like when you like, and I'm assuming cause a lot of, I've a lot of people, you know, that are familiar with the broker websites and, you know, I'm assuming these things are like going for a few hundred grand or something like that. And so you're going there doing some seller financing. And when you're, when you said that, you know, and that you ended up selling them on the peak and I don't know if you want to explain how many transactions you've done, but I'm, I'm assuming if you maybe give us some color on, okay, so if you bought it for whatever the multiple was two and a half, but you know, you're not putting any money down. So it's fine. You know, the cash flow and your growth is financing the purchase. So then you're selling it on the high, is it a bigger multiple? And then are your terms and conditions different as well? So you're getting more cash up front and like explain kind of the, 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 the profitability uh, and the return on the investment that you're getting. 
For sure. Yeah. It's, it, they've all been a little unique. Um, I have taken just a, you know, I've sold seven, seven places now. So, but um, the extremes of all of those were, you know, once again, with the, with the approach of at least buying low, selling high, which is, but when I say, when I say sell high too, it's, it's not, there are three of those deals that I, that I financed because I was so confident the brand would keep performing. So I took, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I did five-year financing on two of them and it, I feel so good about that. I don't I hesitate because of the, the foundation I created in the brand. It, you know, at, at points of my life, like I said, when each of my kids was born, when I started school is, is if I had a revenue stream coming in from somewhere else, then I could kind of identify these points of these things hitting a, a curve. It's, you know, I've been able to want the one I, I sold one place for almost 40 times more than I paid. So that, that was, I call it the extreme. They're not always like that. They're, yeah. you know, I, I've had, you know, double in within a year sold a place for, you know, 14, I owned it for 14 months. It was, you know, easily, you know, six figures plus financing back to me. So it, it you know, the, d- depends on how long I owned it versus mm-hmm. what I, what I acquired it for. Some of them were just incredibly good deals that I just couldn't say no to. And then a, a few of them were, you know, is uh, basically just, and just sign a lease and it's yours. You know, they were, they were just empty. Mm-hmm. So I basically went in, quote a paint, new menu, staff it. And it, so it, it's really hard. I did put some, I contributed some, you know, capital and startup into, into some of these projects. So, mm-hmm. but as far as the multiples, I w- I'm not always, you know, concerned about that being this, strict formula as it is cash flow, right? really good time it's it, yeah so they've all been they've all been a, a little bit different on paper and they like i said i've got some extremes in there that were you know i'd say all within my favor but it's it's a uh, either it, it depends it depends on who the buyer was yep. um it really depends on the you know their situation and what they were looking for out of the deal so i think it's i, I always go into those with an open mind about i'm here this is what i've done this is the history of this place and this will continue to succeed. And I'm willing to go to bat for you on that where I'm still friends with everyone I sold a restaurant to. Mm -hmm. So, and I still stay in touch. I I promise them if you have anything, if you have calls, you know, if you have something come up, like I'm a phone call away because I need and want you to succeed because this is still part of what I created and what I was a part of it. I don't need to cling on to it until I'm super old and can't handle it anymore because I have made a li- living off of people waiting too long to sell restaurants. Like everything I've ever bought at some other point in time was worth way more than I paid. And everything I've looked at that I passed on at still at some other point in time had a value that was way higher than what they put it on the market for. So it, that's, that's the, just the eye opener for me is the pride and the ego and the, the factors of just like, I've, I've been wanting to do this since I was a teenager. It's, it's almost irrelevant if you're using logic and just the business and ethics of just like, okay, I could identify a owner, you know, and sort of like an owner operator situation. They think they're getting a good deal and getting a good deal because of its performance. And I'm staying on board to make sure that it continues to succeed. So there's a no lose situation in here unless something drastic happens, which, which it might or it, it could, but it hasn't happened to me because of the thoughtfulness I put into who I'm selling it to. Mm-hmm. So that's another part of it too, where they're just like anybody, anyone will take a, ch- a check from anyone just to get out because they're so frustrated. 
my part, the other arm of this consulting thing that I'm working on after school is done is to really help people just enter into this process of like you, you're sitting on something that's probably like how you, what you said, it's more valuable than you think. And I can get you there. Like I, I can have you take the steps. It's not going to happen overnight, mm-hmm. but I could coach you in the direction of like, all right, let's get this thing on the rails and get it back into, you know, sort of a profitable nature to give you the opportunity to maximize. If you really want out, it, you just, you can't just put it on the market. You're not prepared. Mm-hmm. It's, it's someone like me would come along and just, you know, not intentionally, but I would have just come along at the right time where I waited long enough to get the best deal. Well, it's the so, same thing with the house, right? I mean, and, and that's where there's so much um, parallels between housing and businesses, right? Where like, you're the whole point of an inspection is you don't want to pay for something that's broken, right? right. But if it's all fixed up, you will pay more. And so like, there is an equal exchange of value. I think where there's a ton of, you know, bruised egos and such is when there's, you know, there, there's false notions of what, and false expectations of what people yeah. should should actually get for what they have. <laughs> right. And a lot of people get in over their head. They want their money back. And that one, that one's, I put 500 grand into this place. Well, you show zero profit and you have a <laughs> bunch of tables and chairs that are, they're, a, mm. you know, a dime on the dollar. So it's, it's, those are tough conversations. And I usually try to avoid them, but you have no idea how many situations I've been. I've walked through uh, a, an available business and the the person selling it is 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 wants to retire with this they managed it for 20 10 20 30 40 years sometimes and they're looking for this top dollar and they've let it go and it's like at, you just have to be able to identify that point in time where you you actually have something tangibly you know backed by numbers and data to sell and that's that's what I've, at least the promise i made to myself is to just not cling on too long. It was like one of my favorite athletes, Minnesota Viking, Robert Smith, when he retired after, you know, he led the league in rushing and won a Pro Bowl. You know, he was a Pro Bowl. Everyone's like, why, why, why? You're in the peak of your career. It was the most brilliant thing I've ever seen Mm -hmm. because he was healthy and he left on a high note and and he spun his career into other, you know, into other things where it's like that athlete that stays the five years too long is just like they, their tendency to get hurt or their, or their, their, the, their I guess the, their, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, didn't want to, I wanted to be, try to be a little more diplomatic, but <laughs> oh, it, I can think about his far, right. Where he's like doing razor commercials and playing for the mortal enemy, the Vikings. <laughs> right. And it was just like, it was, it was one of those things that stuck out to me is just like, you know what? It's, it's a brilliant approach. Like it just, he's a, he's at the top of his game. Let's let everybody remember what that was. And, you know, and it, it, for me, I, I always use that. And I, I don't, I'm not in all that even into sports, but I just remember that as this, as this almost like a case study of like what to do to um, pivot, to have options. And that's kind of this, uh, you know, people always ask mm-hmm. me why I've opened, you know, 11 businesses in 16 years for myself. Why am I getting my MBA right now? It's because I, I see the next 10 years looking differently than my previous 10. I don't want to do what I do for the rest of my life. I don't want to be 80 years old and sitting in one of my places trying to, you know, figure out how that's going to be my retirement plan for my family. Like I, I, I promised myself that I would, I wouldn't overstay my welcome when it came down to relevancy and, and just my, my time, you know, in this, 
in this industry. I mean, the same goes for musicians. You know, people make same fun of the everybody, Rolling Stones of continuing yeah. to tour and stuff. But it's like they're—I mean, they're—they actually. I wouldn't use them as the example. They still I saw Adam rock. Sandler's coming to one of the small <laughs> casinos. In Minnesota. I'm like, there you go. <laughs> like, <laughs> but like, no, but it's, but it's, to be really thoughtful and, and humble and conscious of like, there's this, I think there's a window of time for me personally to do this. And then another, another thing, I guess that I, I, a lot of people don't know, and I appreciate the time to be able to talk about it is this, uh, the, the concepts I create too are, they're, uh, I would, they're very reactive to the space that I see. So I never really build a model out until I walk through an available space. So I, I don't design something that I have any personal attachment to. I, I'm actually just building out the model reactively to the needs of that neighborhood or community or street. So if you can be that thoughtful about it, it's not like I'm, I've been sitting on a craft beer burger bar model since I was a teenager saying, this is my lifelong dream. Mm-hmm. I just need a space and I'm on a rocket. I don't care who my neighbors are. I don't care what town it's in. I don't care if anyone's ready for it. Those are when that, that situation, you're setting yourself up to have your dream get crushed. When I walk into a space, I'm just like, hey, I don't even know what it's going to be. I just want to see it. And I want to see the condition of things. And I want to see what kitchen equipment's there so I know how to draft the first menu when I start drafting, you know, sketching out the logos and, and uh, conceptual design, I, I don't know what it's going to be until I walk through the space. And I think that reactive approach gives me an advantage because this is not a li- none of these restaurants were like a lifelong dream of mine. They were just what I would consider a really good alignment for that neighborhood and what was missing from that neighborhood. So if you, you can make um, points of differentiation like that, you, you've got an advantage because you're not you're not going to get compared like bar brigade is my little French tavern in, in St. Paul. There's nothing like it around me. There's no French restaurant within three miles of that place. So there's no fair comparison. It was like, I walked in, I'm like, man, this, there's an Italian place across the street. There's a deli, there's a burger bar, there's a pizza place. <laughs> there's a, you know, there's all these things. I'm like, well, here's what they're missing. And that's why, that's why people love it. And that's why people go. It's, it's, I, there's, there's no point of comparison anyone can make to what wild boar bourguignon should cost or taste like. Like it's, we, we drafted a menu around being unique. And so I utilized the really good use of space and a lot, most of the same furniture, the same exact kitchen equipment. And we, I changed a, a couple of surfaces, um, tile and wallpaper and paint and, and, uh, but that, that whole project, it, I put $25,000 into it. So it was, you know, and, and, uh, increase the sales. I, how, how do you determine that. Maddie when it's time? So how do you determine what it's time, when it, when it's time and then explain your process of selling and how you go about doing it? Yeah. For me too, selfishly, I'll, I'll freely admit that there, you know, I, I, when my first um, kid was born, I, I was just like, I, I just want to work less and I really see this one opportunity of being an amazing dad <laughs> I'm literally going to get one chance at this. I had already opened five businesses by that time. So I'm like, I, at this pace, I could open 50 businesses in my life, but I have this one shot of being a great dad. So at every, every, I have two kids and at each point that they were, you know, born or soon thereafter, I was like, well, I, this, 
this, I want to, I want to have more time and more flexibility. So I would basically just try to identify which place of mine was good, was good timing for me to move on from. And it was, so it was almost react, that was almost reactive too. It, none of them were ever hit the market, not being profitable, not being queued up, you know, for a new operator to come in and, and make some adaptive changes that help their success. They're all, all the places that I've sold are still open. Um, they're still thriving, if not busier than when I own them. And I'm still friends with them all. So it's like, a, we have a great, you know, exit plan when it comes down to this too, is just that alignment of ownership. And when I, when I got up to seven restaurants this year, this last year, it's, it's, uh, you know, I don't, I don't have any business partners. I don't have any investors. So it's also unique in this business to sort of be, uh, you know, Han Solo on this deal. <laughs> so it's like, a, it's, uh, it's, a, it gets overwhelming that, you know, things change beyond my control. Like this labor market we're in right now is, is, has a set of challenges for my industry that there is a shortage of, of cooks and available um, help. And, uh, and the places I just sold were all seasonal. I guess it was a, you know, I, my wife is a professor. My kids are nine and six, so they have summers off. So I, I had four extremely summer heavy seasonal businesses that I was just like, well, you know what, to be the best dad I can be, I need summers off more or less. So I'd like, mm-hmm. if that's, so when we, you know, identified the buyer for um, that, those businesses, it was, it was actually just more that they're really cool, you know, took things that were either empty or um, needed, needed new alignment in a concept or a new operator. A couple of them were food trucks, which has been a great experience. Those were nothing but fun, profitable, you know, a great, I owned three food trucks for just about five years and sort of, and it, but they're all so summer reliant. Mm-hmm. And so I, I can't, I can't say anything other than selfishly that they're just, we're, I have you know, three other businesses that are doing great. And, and, uh, and I've got a licensing agreement at the airport that really is uh, with Republic that just, you know, it's pretty hands off, but it's a, a nine year lease out there. And I look at the kind of like the bigger picture of like, Hey, I'm getting my MBA and finishing in May. I've got a sweet family that I love and I've got tons of things I could do next if I had a little more headspace and a little more time. So the idea that I could sell something, spin it into another business or two is always the change, you know, change being the constant for me always sort of invigorated my, Mm -hmm. you know, entrepreneurial spirit and just got me motivated to see what else is out there. Did you ever decide to get sucked into the real estate in any of these deals? It's the one, I wouldn't even call it a regret, but I'd say what I know now versus what, how I would have approached it differently is I would have really made a, an attempt to at least two of the, two of the buildings I probably would have made a run at purchasing them. There was also this point in my life too, that with the idea of me being a a landlord versus me being a creative force was, it it was, it was somewhat limiting at this kind of pivotal point in my life. Like if I would have started down that road pre kid, I probably would have, I would have jumped on it. It would have been fine. I would have been, I, I would have been happy with that decision. There are also just days in my life you know, before I had kids that, you know, I worked a lot and like a lot of entrepreneurs do and a lot of restaurant people do. And now I kind of, I don't want to brag about it, but I, I have a structure where I'm not, I've clarified the difference between ownership and employment. Mm-hmm. I don't manage anything for myself. I don't work. I'm not overworked. I, I take a pretty, you know, 
limited day side, you know, weekday schedule. I basically work, you know, 10 to three Monday through Friday for myself and, you know, focus on the things that I need to focus on. And I'm, I'm employing and empowering people to, who are, you know, ready to learn and really want to, it was me 20 years ago, basically mm-hmm. is who I'm, is who I'm helping in a really positive culture and environment sort of sharing, you know, my experience with them from a pretty passive way on the floor. So I, 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 uh, I don't get roped into too many shifts anymore unless it's an extreme. I had a few days last summer that I, with this, with seven businesses up and running and all of them being <laughs> I can only imagine events and food truck dates. And they're like, who can work today? You know, just kind of panicky, sort of like, <laughs> I'll do, I'll do it. And then, you know, <laughs> my wife would laugh. She's like, you're, you're bartending where? I'm like, I can't, I can't. <laughs> so it was, it was pretty, it was pretty fun, but it was, it was fun to jump back in too. And it was like, almost like nature. I'd done, I had done every position in the restaurant business before working for myself. I'd waited tables and bartended and bus tables and washed dishes and managed. And, you know, it's, I'd been a, I'm not a, a, big dude but i've been a bouncer and a host you know, i like so it's like bouncer done, your own plays that uh, have you ever done that <laughs> no i haven't the, uh, oh and maybe no kind of one's one zombie pub crawl on seven oh. corners i did have to we did have to be there and we all basically, that one. man it was crazy and it was a uh, maybe the busiest single day i've ever had every public was one of those days we basically you know i turned into a glorified security because of just it's just madness and chaos so you kind of have to just keep that those instincts kick right back in from sort of preventative you know protect you know, the crowd, crowd and, yeah just door control so but yeah it's a it's a it's been a great it's been a great run Maddie, it, it describe to the the audience um what you're doing now and what's the best way to get in touch with you so right now, I for my final project for the MBA, as well as for my own um, personal benefit, so I've done about 10 years worth of sort of pro bono consulting. I love helping other people. And it's, and it's I, I was doing it pro bono because I, I didn't really want to launch that business while I was building my own businesses because I'd be, basically be helping my competition. And I thought it gave a strange perception outside looking in is why would this guy help me? But I'm I'm overly inspired by other people's stories. So my final project for the MBA, as well as what I hope to launch at some point this summer, is this um, coaching and consulting company. And it's a, it's coming from a very good place. My mission is to reduce the failure rate in restaurants, and I can do it. And it's uh, I've helped a lot of people. Basically, I've saved a lot of people from making huge mistakes. I could. Uh, help a lot of investors not get into, you know, troublesome deals by just getting a glimpse. There's a lot there. I'm working with a, a really cool data analytics um, software um, startup out of Chicago that just launched a product uh, on how they're going to uh, basically give people the information that they should have at their fingertips. But I'd be an extra layer of that providing solutions to that information. So it's oh, cool. this kind of three armed approach of just like it's, more or less, it's a, it's kind of a, a really good natured um, sort of snapshot of the sort of culmination of my experience and diverse sort of experience within the industry, but really leaning on this um, data driven solution, you know, because I think a lot of people just don't know 
their numbers. Okay. And they, once they have the numbers, they don't know what to do with them to make mm -hmm. adaptive change. So I think I've, I've got a really sort of humble approach to helping people. If I, if I were to do anything differently, I always thought I was going to be a teacher or a coach. And I think I just, I, it comes from this place where now I have this 24 years of knowledge. I've got this sort of foundation of this, um, this MBA experience, which has been nothing but positive and sort of the structure to how I'm going to spin it into the future is just, it's, uh, I'm, I'm really excited about it. I, it's, uh, working on all the fine tuning and details and website and that stuff, but it's not quite there. I want to finish, um, strong with school and then we're, so we're done in May. And then I'd really just, uh, I'm, I'm not one to let the, uh, grass grow around my feet, if you know what I mean. So I'd yeah, say yeah, some, yeah. soon thereafter this summer, I'd be, uh, taking on accounts and it's, it, it's also very, very unique. I don't see a lot of people approaching restaurant consulting for the most part is a pretty front loaded, you know, someone helps someone open and then they walk away when the doors open and these things fall apart almost mm -hmm. instantly where mine mm -hmm. is more of this really like just ongoing, affordable, approachable, uh, a kind of extra set of eyes on numbers and fluctuations within those numbers to help people make these adjustments before they become drastic. So I'm coming at it from a more of like, I don't want you to give me a huge check to help you launch a place. I want you to give me a super small check every month so you don't go out of business. Because I, once again, if I go back to the mission, if I can prevent a handful of them from opening and people making mistakes, it helps my industry. Mm -hmm. If I can help a bunch of good people who are working hard that don't have a grasp on the data and how to use it to their advantage, I, I, want, I want to get a hold of as many people like that as possible because those, those, when your food cost goes up two points every month and you're not watching, it's, that's, I want to help people pay attention and really provide the sound advice on how to get it back in line. So I'll be doing that. Um, and then uh, this summer, for <laughs> the first summer in five years, we have like three or four camping trips with my family and just to get out. We're going to Banff and we're going to Boulder and oh, we just got a, got new, a new tent and all this stuff that it's been really hard for me to do with all the, the seasonal operations that I had. So I'm just like, I'm staring at summer this year as a very different picture. Like, than back in, like when you're in high school and college, like an actual <laughs> summer. <laughs> like an actual break. So it's a uh, kind of the luxury of my wife's job and my kids, you know, at the ages they are is, is we could really take advantage of this, um, those three months. So that's, uh, that's happening. And then, um, a handful of projects have come my way. I'm sort of looking at them like pretty passively at the moment, but they're, you know, to say I'm done. I, I think that'd be almost foolish. I, you know, I love the three places I have Delicata pizza, underrated cool little neighborhood pizza joint in the Como neighborhood and then Bar Brigade is this little accessible French tavern in Macroveland neighborhood and then I've got that uh Republic kind of just firing on all cylinders and then this the airport you know model just helps you know support some of the some of the things that are happening and then you know it's just, it, I'll take on as many uh coaching and consulting accounts this summer as I can handle because I, I truly am inspired by just hearing other people's stories of their startups and their concepts. The, uh, a few consulting accounts I have right now are, uh, just are almost giving me the confidence that I, I am, I know I can help a lot more people other than just myself. And it's, uh, it doesn't take a lot of time. It won't take a lot of their money for me to just, you know, just get them, you know, from, 
uh, potentially going under or getting frustrated where they make bad decisions. So it's, it's a, that's my goal and my hope is I can really make a difference on the industry as a whole. And I'm not talking about just Minnesota, like this data, this data company too, they're looking a lot bigger than beyond just the state. It's uh, with the access and um, cloud-based, you know, technology and sort of the, the, the era we're in right now. It's like, I, this is uh, this getting a snapshot of someone's business by the numbers first is, is pretty easy for me to just, you know, finally there. in a few minutes I can identify problems, but with the, within that, I can start to identify solutions too. So it's, it's, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to just getting, getting in, 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 um, a few more businesses to be able to just provide advice and help. So, and that's, I guess the best way of getting a hold of me, just hit me up on LinkedIn right now. And then from there, I'll be able to communicate, um, when, when the website launches this summer, um, on how, how I'm going to pivot that after school. And we'll have the links in the show notes too for the listeners. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Thank you so much for coming on the show, man. You had a blast, man. This is awesome stories. Yeah. No, my pleasure. Uh, thanks for, thanks for inviting me. It's really fun to talk about some of this stuff and, and I lo- I'm really liking your show. It's I've, I've listened to some episodes and it's, it's uh you're you're helping people at least you know frame some things that they might not have thought of and just given a lot of good, good context uh, right given yep, some context context yes it's perfect so thank you very much thanks for sticking in there i hope you enjoyed the episode with maddie uh i don't know about you but i definitely have thought about going out and starting a restaurant after listening to that episode and chatting with him with that being said if you are interested in the Growth and Exit Planning Accelerator, the 12-month program that I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, reach out to me at ryan at gexpcollaborative.com. Otherwise, go on to our website. There's a bunch of information about the accelerator on the website. And with that being said, I will see you next week.